Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> it's been a long day already. It has been a long day. Been, yeah. Um, this, for those of you who don't know, we are recording two in one day because, you know, we have lives and things that we're doing um, on our normal schedule. Um, so we're, we are knocking them out of the park. So I've switched drinks. I now am drinking a latte to keep me awake. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Uh, Corey makes them. We have a little coffee bar and I can just be like, Hey, I want uh, this in this latte, make it for me. And he will. It's great. Wow. That's really nice. Get you a husband that likes to bake and mix drinks. Everybody I'm telling you this right now. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds really nice. Yeah. I wish I had one of those. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I lucked out myself so. these days. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it, I am like feeding his addiction. We have so many syrups. It's not even funny at this point, like different flavored syrups and stuff. Have so, you ever had a lavender latte? I have. Dude, this is so good. We have lavender as well. <laughs> If they ever come visit, that's yeah. going to be my drink of choice. They're tricky to do though, because if you put too much in, then they taste like perfume. We found that out the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Although I do like mine on the little heavier side, but not too heavy. Yeah. You don't want it to taste like soap is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> coffee, yeah, sure. coffee and soap. Yeah. So yeah, this one sure. is a raspberry mocha latte or as Corey calls oh. it, the Jillian special. I love that. That sounds so good. Yeah. I, I just love raspberry chocolate together. I will sometimes do like a dirty chai too. I do those a lot. What's a dirty chai again? Like tea? It's a chai. Yeah. Like a chai tea latte with, um, with espresso. espresso. Yeah. Okay. And I realized saying chai tea is repetitive. You know, one of my friends is listening. She'll give me shit for it. It's chai just means tea. So you don't oh. have to say chai tea. You can just say a chai latte. Oh. Yeah. Well, how about that? <laughs> Learning something new every day. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. 
Yeah. So it's like, t- can I have a TT? Yeah. Wow. Same with I'm non. With non means just means bread. So you don't say non bread. You just say non. Wow. Yeah. There's a I'm lot really of words. Annoyed. I look back <laughs> at this and I'm like really annoyed with myself. <laughs> yikes. Big yikes. Oh. Yeah. You know. That's so crazy. I am refueling. What are we are? That sounds good. I should have done the same thing on our break, but I didn't. I just no. changed out my laundry. So you had something interesting related to volcanoes per our last episode that you wanted to share something more biology related. Yeah, I did. So when Jillian came to me wanting to grab volcanoes, my mind went straight to this news article I found a couple of months ago, maybe, well, this one was written in September 5th of 2020, so around that time frame and um the article is um about sharks that live in volcanoes so this article was written in september 5th 2020 i am on snowbrains.com if you just google sharks living in volcanoes this is the first article that pops up so essentially they found sharks living in that's not good um they found sharks living in volcanoes and so scientists captured video evidence of sharks living in a volcano and by dropping a camera into the narrator volcano named Kavachi and this is located in the Solomon Islands now Kavachi was not actively erupting when the team captured the footage but just they, they only left the camera in the underwater crater for an hour and while it was there which is like also this water inside the crater is very hot and it's acidic and it's clouded with sediment making inside of the volcano a really unlikely place for marine life when you think about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And there are, so for those of you who don't know, like there is a term for animals and organisms that live in extreme environments and they are called extremophiles. Um, I guess, this is what these sharks could be considered because this is a pretty extreme environment yeah um, but they're all species that are just kind that are normal uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's why i'm a little confused about it too right yeah but so the species that were in there were silky sharks and hammerhead sharks which we get off the coast of texas like that's that's a normal normal shark <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? Yeah, a couple of weekends ago, we dove the bush wreck that's down near Luke over here. And on our safety stop back up, we saw hammerheads swimming by. Right. Yeah. So give you a little idea of hammerheads are found down here in the Florida Keys, off the coast of Texas, and also in volcanoes. In volcanoes. And the Solomon Islands. I'm wondering, Um, like, if they're just so thermally adapted to that area because I know different fish in different latitude latitudes latitudes <laughs> have uh, differing like thermal ranges that they can be in. So like a fish down south can it, it can be in warmer waters and then a fish of the same species like farther up north can't necessarily be in as warm water but like in colder waters. 
And that's something that happens like within species. So maybe these individuals are just really, really well adapted. Um, right. Yeah, they could be. I also wonder though, if they're um, resident or if they, they're migratory. Yeah. I, my guess would be resident because I don't think you could have be too much to go yeah. in and out with that. Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't like used to it, your like physiology, your metabolism wasn't used to it. Um, yeah, that shit's nuts. And so I was looking at the pictures, the volcano is actually like a seamount. So it's underwater completely. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah, really God. cool. <laughs> which is why there's sharks mm-hmm. in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is not an above ground situation. Yeah. Underwater situation. Yeah, that's really hopeful for like uh, species having adaptation to warming waters via climate change, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so they also, other than the sharks in here, um, they also recorded jellyfish, snappers, and a stingray that's good the crater yeah yeah so it's kind of diverse in there it's not just the sharks huh i only heard it's about interesting sharks yeah yeah it's really interesting and so they it looks like uh, this article says that the sh- the scientist the sh- <laughs> it's a shark scientist it's like a tongue twister it's like volcanologist <laughs> and a shark scientist and a scientist <laughs> it's a scientist <laughs> um god <laughs> Yeah, so it looks like these scientists are planning to tag one of the sharks that are living in the volcano in the future to find more about their habitat. Yeah. Habitats, I'm sorry, again, can't speak. More about their habits. Because, um, yeah, they don't know what happens to sharks when the volcano is actively erupting. Right. I wonder, so, so those of you who don't know, um, sh- all shark species have this thing on them called the ampullae of Lorenzini under their snout and what that is it's uh like essentially like a sensory mechanism for them and it helps them sense movement in the water so like it kind of helps them find their prey and everything and if you guys have ever seen people um putting tiger sharks into what they call tonic immobility which is a sleep pattern that's what they're rubbing on their snout is the ampullae of Lorenzini. They rub that and it puts them into this state of tonic immobility, which is pretty much just kind of puts them into like a little nap. I wish I had that. Yeah. And so (laughs) I'm like, I'm really wondering if the ampullae of Lorenzini on these sharks helps them sense when this volcano is about to erupt and just dip out because they can sense the slight vibrations or I mean, the change that, in energy. That totally makes sense to me. That's probably exactly what's happening. Fish yeah. have similar organs, like they have the lateral the line. lateral line, yeah. Yeah, which runs down their body and they can protect stuff. I wouldn't want to be a crab or something in that volcano. Though, oh my God, no. I'll be like, you're <laughs> fucking sitting duck in that point. Yeah, I actually just read a paper about um, American and European eel migration. Um, mm-hmm. And they think potentially European eels use these slight chemical changes in the water, especially in areas along the mid-ocean ridge where there's chemicals and eruptions and stuff being released into the water. And so they kind of use that as potentially like a map to find the Sargasso Sea because um, they oh, spawn out in the Sargasso Sea. Um, 
Dude, it's really interesting how behavior is so cool to me. Yeah, I know. That's that's just wild. That's why I work in this field. (laughs) Same. I'm like all of it. Like I, my dad's coworker's daughter was doing an assignment in her marine biology class or one of her like marine science classes. Mm -hmm. And it was like to interview someone in the marine science field. And like one of the questions was, you know, how did you get in this field? What's your favorite part about it? Yeah. And um, I just told her, I was like, everything is my favorite part about it. That's why I like working in this field because it's just always like really cool stuff. Yeah. And I'll give people some advice as well on if you want to get into marine biology, be open to studying anything in like the marine habitat, because I think a lot of people go in expecting to work with the really big charismatic, uh, like marine mammals, fish, like sharks and stuff. Um, that's not always the case. Um, usually it's not, I work with very, very small organisms, but I still find it very fascinating because they're kind of the base of the ecosystem and, you know, affect everything up the trophic chain or the food web chain. And Mm -hmm. I still have gotten to do shark research and I'm not a shark biologist or shark specialist. So like things can happen, then the opportunities will come to you. Um, You just have to dive in and know that, um, you know, you need to be open to researching all kinds of things because there's all kinds of really cool, interesting animals uh, living in the ocean. That's my uh, PSA today. <laughs> that's, gr- that's great. That's great advice. Yeah. is important. Like the filter feeders, like they're not the most adorable thing in the world, but they're important. Yeah. Well, and I, I find my, my shrimpies and my little teeny fish, I find them adorable in their own way. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. and... dude, have you ever seen a sea scallop swim? Yes. That is the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Honestly, like, I don't think anything else can beat that. (laughs) (laughs) And they got these really cool, bright blue eyes. And they're just like, like, so how sea scallops swim, just to give everyone a visual, is they have their shells, right? And they just open it like a mouth and then they shut it again. And they're just kind of like putzing along the ocean, just like (laughs) opening and closing their shell. If, if you've thing. never seen it go look up a video it will yeah. change your whole world and then you'll really appreciate scallops more for just being than just being they're delicious yummy yeah i love them <laughs> I'm so like, wow you're really cute and you're so good too <laughs> <laughs> they have 200 of those bright blue eyes did you know that no i didn't yeah they have 200 of them Damn. wild because okay, you know how you're asking about the, um, the volcano erupts mm-hmm uh i guess the scientists returned back to the volcano when it was doing an active eruption um and it says they made cheap robots out of used pvc pipe and a few hundred dollars of electronic electronic equipment and i was reading that sentence and it's like that's the most like marine science like thing that i've read yeah, put I your field gear them. together with some duct tape and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really what I was like, wow. I, I can only I really can imagine this in my brain. They're like looking in like the junkyard around the lab. Like, what do we got? Oh, yeah. Some PVC pipe back here we can use. All right. We always have PVC pipe. That's you know, yeah. that's marine biology 101. Gotta have duct tape, PVC, PVC pipe, and a rope. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, so they made cheap robots out of used PVC pipe and a few hundred dollars of electronic equipment, and then they dropped those robot robots. Wow, I cannot talk. Maybe I should go get some coffee. <laughs> they dropped the robots over the volcano, and then they didn't see any sharks in the volcano while mm-hmm. it was erupting. But they did manage to collect more data. So I guess that kind of says the sharks were able to sense that it was going to erupt, and they moved out. Right? Yeah, I can assume. Like, I mean educated guess that's that makes a lot of sense to me based on what i know about sharks yeah same yeah and then this little paragraph it says they found that near the undersea vent surface water temperatures were 10 degrees celsius which is translates to 50 degrees fahrenheit higher than normal so that's interesting too scientists also found that the ph of the surface water was significantly lower than normal meaning that the ocean water near the vent is very acidic yeah that makes yeah. sense um the team also discovered a unique means of collecting rock samples when an eruption forced pieces of volcanic material into the robot um, <laughs> that's like i don't know this just sounds like shit hit the fan. that's what that sounds like that sounds but, like but they, in a good way they discovered a unique way to collect rocks and really the rocks like exploded into their robot and they're like oh this is convenient great <laughs> yeah we've like, collected we'll rocks yeah <laughs> i mean that's how it all research goes it's all just trial and error and just like well let's see what we can do you know Mm -hmm. but yeah that's really interesting and it kind of ties in really nicely with what we're going to talk about today yeah what are we talking about today so i told you last uh or two weeks ago i will be two weeks ago for you guys it's literally only 30 minutes for us (laughs) Um, I know I was I literally thought two weeks ago like in real time too yeah. I was like what did you tell me two weeks ago <laughs> um that uh this is kind of a two-parter uh we talked about the Armero tragedy um last episode and this episode we are following um the researcher Marta Calvace um and her experience as one of Colombia's like premier uh, volcanologists um, and how she used what she learned in Armero to kind of help save some people. Um, and we're also going to find out what happens when humans are around right at a volcanic explosion. So just fair warning to everybody once again um, about this episode. Um, we're going to talk about gross body stuff. We're going to talk about injuries Um traumatic injuries and if that's something that you think you'll be triggered by um then this might not be the episode or podcast for you um so let's just go ahead and get into it it's gonna be a time um all right so oh i'm so ready to get into it okay so the tragedy at armero was a precedent that haunted colombians for decades to come that's why in 1989, when another Colombian volcano, Galeris, became or began producing tremors and releasing volcanic gas or fumaroles, as it's called scientifically, um, at its crater. Um, so Colombian volcanologists were not taking any chances this time um, because our marrow was such an epic loss of human life. Um, they just wanted to prevent it as, as much as they could. Um, 
However, this time the volcano only had a small eruption, what they call a throat clearing, um, explosion of ash um, without the town erasing aspects of a lahar mud flow that they experienced um, in Armero. Um, but this time people heeded the scientists' warnings um, as Armero was very fresh on the collective consciousness. Um, but nothing happened to the town. Everybody was safe. It was all good. Um, so they all returned and did what they needed to do, which I would rather do that and have that happen than not evacuate and, you know, die or go through some really, really horrifying stuff. Um, yeah. So, um, so that was in 89. Um, but tremors continued again in 1991. Oh God. Um, That's not too much like, yeah they're they're very active during this time period i don't know if they're still this active now um but these volcanoes are basically on part of the pacific rim um okay which is basically just the chain of volcanoes surrounding that pacific tectonic plate and so if there's anything about volcanoes that makes them more active than others it's like uh plate movement plate shifting oh yeah. So like when the, the continental plates start pushing against each other, that's like when you're going to start seeing more activity. So yeah, um, that, that makes sense. But I just mm-hmm. wonder like in certain areas, like are, are some more susceptible to higher plate movement than others? I, I don't know. Um, from everything I can gather, it's, it might be based on location and I'm not gotcha. sure. Yeah. I'm just, um, that's a, that's a thought out loud. Yeah, no, there might there might very well be uh, areas that have more uh, tectonic activity than others, but you can't have a volcano unless you have some kind of um, active magma activity or tectonic activity. Sometimes volcanoes, like volcanic islands, are formed with hot spots, so like very thin areas in the Earth's crust, so mm-hmm. the magma can rise to the surface. That's how the Hawaiian Islands were formed. Um, yeah. Because they are they are smack dab in the middle of the Pacific Plate, so they're mm-hmm. nowhere near a tectonic plate boundary. But because there's a hot spot there, there's islands. Um, but that's about the extent of what I know about volcanoes. <laughs> how they work. Wait, so like, do does Hawaii get earthquakes then? Uh, I don't think so. I'm, I mean, you can get earthquakes anywhere, but it's not known for earthquakes. No. Okay. Yeah, it's not like California. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we have tremors. It's 1991. The magma was rising in Galeris to build a dome at the crater. And this is a sign that an eruption is imminent. Um, so soon the question on a lot of scientists' minds, not just the ones in Colombia, was when will Galeris erupt? Not will Galeris erupt, when will it happen? Because yeah. they knew it was going to happen. So there was, went on for a couple more years, you know, watching the tremors, watching the activity is still pretty calm um, comparatively. Um, but in 1993, uh, Marta Calvache, who was at the Armero tragedy, was preparing the town of Pasto, um, which was a town at the base of this volcano, um, to hold the largest international scientific gathering in Colombian history. 
Marta was a gorgeous, smart Colombian volcanologist who started her career career in Manizales, um, which is a town near the Nevado del Ruiz volcano um, that caused the Armero tragedy. Um, so she worked on that team that warned Amero to evacuate during the eruption in 1985. Um, and now she was one of the leading experts on volcanology in Colombia and ran the volcano observatory at Galeris in Pasto, the town. Um, so cool. the, com- yeah. So she like took that experience and ran with it, you know? Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I bet she is like, has learned yeah from that last yeah. eruption yeah um so this conference was to host a hundred volcanologists and uh geologists from all over the world um including um, a man named dr stanley williams who was marta's graduate advisor during her doctorate studies at the university of arizona so the conference was mostly constituted of presentations on various research and topics affecting volcanology. Um, but there was one day in which participants could sign up to go on field trips to the volcano. Um, and Williams was going to lead a trip down into the caldera of the volcano itself. Um, so, you know, typical scientific conference stuff, we've both been to conferences. Um, most of the time you're sitting in a room listening to people drone on about whatever. Um, sometimes the presentations are interesting, sometimes not so much. Um, but usually for us, we get to do one little field trip or something like that. So that's kind of what they were doing too. Is like, you know, they had traveled all this way to Colombia. They wanted to see like a real active volcano do its thing. Right. Yeah. So Stanley Williams's main research involved using volcanic gas samples to determine if a volcano was going to erupt or not. And basically he leaned into gas sample data instead of like the seismic data. So those are the tremors that you can read. Mm -hmm. Um, And he thought that that was more important in predicting a volcano eruption. Um, Okay. Which... I could hear that. I mean, wait, I, you said you said he thought gas was more important or tremors were more important? Gas. Oh, okay. Never mind. I take, I take back my statement. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not an expert. So, but I'm like, I feel like seismic activity is pretty standard. All right. Yeah. 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 I agree. Um, so, apparently, the chemical composition of the gas could determine what was going on beneath the earth. Um, But this was the opposite of what a majority of scientists claimed. The tremors were one of the best predictors of eruption. Um, Bernard Chouet, I think that's how you say it. He's Swiss. (laughs) A a Swiss-born American scientist working for the U.S. geology program was successful in predicting several small eruptions, um, including a volcano in Alaska. And he also helped Marta predict one of Galeris's smaller eruptions in 91. Uh, Shuei collected data from all kinds of volcano eruptions, including the 1985 eruption of the Nevado del Ruiz, and determined that the small irregular seismic tremors hinted at an eruption in the near future. So basically, like, if you started seeing these small tremors, there was going to be an eruption in, like, a few days. Like that's, that's right. how short that timeline was. Um, these seismic events are called tornillos. 
Um, and they had been present in Galeris's data in the days leading up to and during the conference. Oh, wow. So you can see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Fuck. Um, but Williams had determined through sampling Galeris's gas that everything was fine, even though these tornadoes were happening. But, All right. So this is like point proven that don't trust the gas. Yeah. Um, and in his opinion, tornadoes were not good indicators of an eruption and that that science was just a bunch of bullshit, essentially. Um, I wonder how much of this was his ego getting in the way. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, um, right? This sounds like a lot of ego. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't want to shit on anyone in the scientific community, but... Um, uh, there's a lot of egos being thrown around in the scientific community. Well, yes, or... it, it happens all the time in every field, especially in academia, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and since the conference was basically his brainchild, um, he made the decision to lead the field trip into the caldera anyway, um, despite, despite warnings from the seismologists at the meeting um that were like yo we probably shouldn't do this um yeah like the thing good yeah and also despite the fact that he had never successfully predicted an eruption using his gas chemistry method so tell me the ones that um thought that the seismic measurements were the right way to uh predict a eruption did not go on this thing well yes and no I think God. the ones, yeah, the ones that really Hi. pushed against it didn't go, but um, yeah, most people believed in the seismic, but you, it's one of those things where it's like you have this opportunity to go see something really cool and they decide, a lot of people decided to go see it. So we'll get to okay. it. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. Well, and Williams was pretty well respected within the volcanology community, despite his, you know, I don't want to say unorthodox ideas, but like not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're outside of the box thinking. Yeah. Outside of the box thinking. Um, but he was still really, really well respected within the community. So I think people trusted him in that way mm -hmm. too. Um, so by seven 30 in the morning on January 14th, 1993, a group of scientists met in the hotel lobby, ready to head up the mountain and into the caldera itself. Um, so Stanley Williams was joined by Mike Conway, Andrea McFarlane, Andy Adams, who are all Americans, um, Alfredo Roldan, Nestor Garcia, Jose Arles Zapata, Carlos Trujillo, uh, Fernando Cuencia, um, and Fabio Garcia, and these uh, scientists were all from South America. And then okay. also uh, Igor Menyel, Men uh, Yeah, I was, I was looking at that script. last name. I was Igor like, good luck, <laughs> who was a grizzled Russian uh, volcanologist and a veteran of the field. And Geoff Brown, who was a British, uh, I guess I would just be Jeff. Jeff it's spelled yeah. Geoff. <laughs> so yeah. my brain was like, Geoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just Jeff. It's Jeff Brown, a British chemist. Oh my god. You mean that sounds so much cooler than it actually is? Jeff. <laughs> um 
Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm not meaning to butcher this, but my brain is so stupid. <laughs> I did really well on all the Hispanic, Hispanic names, and then I get to fucking Jeff Brown. <laughs> <laughs> okay it's all good it's It's fine fine. um so by 9 a.m the scientists had arrived at the summit and began prepping and setting up the at the police outpost that sat near the edge of the volcano crater um and the outpost was basically there to warn pasto and the other towns of an eruption in case the scientists had gotten the data wrong so you know, they kind of learned from Armero in that regard. Um, so if you look at the first picture, this mm-hmm. is the caldera of Galeris. And you can okay. see there's a cone in the middle. Yeah. And that's the kind of smaller crater on top of that cone is where the actual like caldera actually is. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's not as big as um, Nevado de Ruiz. Galeris has a 500-foot deep caldera bowl, and in the center of the bowl rises this tall cinder cone. Here's where you can see the magma and gases um, escaping, but you have to go down into the caldera and then climb up the cone in order to even see anything. Yeah, because it's like a little... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. It's like, it. it's like a hole. It's like it's yeah. It's like a hill. You go down the down the hill, and then you go back up the hill. Yeah, and then it's a hole. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird because I just always imagine volcanoes. It's just like a deep pit full of magma. But same. Yeah, in this case, that's not what it was. Um, so the summit was foggy this morning, and Williams's group began to descend into the caldera. Um, Andy Adams. Can you pause for a second. Sorry, yeah, I don't want to interrupt. But I'm, like, really distracted by this, what looks like a, a building or, like, a, a cell tower or a radio tower behind Yeah, us. that's the police. That, that's the police station? I think so. Okay. I was yeah. I didn't know if that was, like, their, like, scientific station or what, what that was. Yeah, so there's a, a radio tower up there, too, so that they can communicate with people down in the town quickly. Okay. Yeah. About so like, the activity up here. Yeah. Yeah. And that looks pretty close. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't put that a little farther away. Well, but if you can't see it, I mean. Yeah, no, I get that, but it's like you could just like you know take some trips up, like a trip. I don't know, like every so out many hours. I mean, if I was one of those policemen, I would be very sketched out about being up there. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like shock that. Do you like pull the short straw and get volcano duty? Like, <laughs> does that work? Like your is this like your doghouse? Did you just, like mess yeah. that work? And this is your punishment. <laughs> God, it's fine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's fine though. It's fine. Yeah. So the summit was foggy. They're descending into the caldera. Andy Adams and Alfredo Roldan were the only scientists that decided to wear hard hats and steel-toed boots. Um, And Williams and the other scientists laughed at them for their safety measures. I was going to say, I feel like this fun fact that you just said about safety measures is going to say a lot um, in a few moments. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Well, and this is kind of where the whole ego thing gets in the way. Cause I feel like people who study volcanoes have that kind of like, I'm a badass. I don't, I don't care. I, I go into danger kind of vibe. I can, I could see, especially guys. Yeah. Who study, study volcanoes. Yeah. Um, I could see that too. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a great start, right? To this mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah. So Adams noted many of the scientists had never been to an active volcano and was annoyed with Williams's behavior, but Adams only had his bachelor degree and Williams had his doctorate. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the world of science, that kind of meant that Adams wasn't an expert and Williams was. Um, and that is something yeah. that we, I think Haley and I have both experienced working in this field oh Um, yeah yeah if you're a tech or if you're even just a regular old biologist like myself sometimes that means that phds will look down on you a little bit um or sometimes a lot um a lot of people are cool though so it's kind of a a toss-up like who you interact with um but there is definitely Mm -hmm. that that kind of um uh not animosity i guess so I kind of understand like the position that Adams was in because I've been in that position before. Yeah. Um, I think everybody who doesn't have their PhD in science has experienced that in one way or another. And like, I have my master's. So yeah, like, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that like, why, why we have this weird kind of like authority complex going on. It, I hate it. I don't know when, where it started, but I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Adams is experiencing that. Um, That's a bummer. Well, yeah. at least you can empathize with that because been there, done that. Absolutely. Um, so he enrolled on, wore the gear anyway, which I would do. Yeah. Um, in addition, they brought gas masks um, because sometimes, you know, the gases escaping can do bad things. Arm you. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense. Um, um, only one of the 13 scientists brought a radio. So God. that's another safety issue. Yeah. And uh, remember when I was just talking about how I got lost in the woods and thank <laughs> God we had GPS radios. Right. That's how we got out. Like, yeah. geez. <laughs> yeah. And there, it was just two of us. So one was fine between the two of us. But right. How many, how many were here? Like 10, you said? 13. 13? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah, you need like five radios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then also no one was positioned on the caldera rim to receive radio information from the observatory on the seismic activity um, on the volcano. So the observatory down in the town was recording seismic readings and they would report it up to like the police station or if somebody was on the caldera rim the radio waves could get to them but if you were down in the caldera the radio waves from the observatory in the town couldn't get to you and there was no one on the rim they, they had no one positioned on the rim because they were all excited to get down into the caldera this is poor planning this is yeah. really poor planning yeah and so so if there was someone on the rim you could go radio from the town to the rim and then the rim could radio from the rim to the caldera yes is that correct okay. yeah 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 I, I was hoping to explain that well because it's like the town and then you go into the volcano and then <laughs> um but it's, it's like a telephone game like you have to yeah. be in certain spots to hear it and then you have yeah. to relay that information to the next because yeah yeah got it yeah yeah, yeah 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 so that was another 
safety concern. I mean, like bring one of your grad students and make them stand on the caldera rim. Like that's yeah, what grad I mean, students are for. So beneath you, <laughs> make them do the shit work, right? Exactly. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> so they slid down the caldera slope using a hundred foot fixed rope. Um, the caldera slope was covered in scree um, or just loose rocks and gravel that made unassisted descent unwise. So because it, all the rocks and stuff were very loose, you know, you needed unwise. a rope. Unwise. What a good word for that. Thank you. <laughs> That's very, uh, very polite. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could probably do it and be okay, but um it's like, you know, when you're running down a gravel hill or whatever, yeah. this stuff starts to slide and you start to slide with it. It's kind of one of those things. Um, so in addition to the scientists, Williams also invited two completely untrained reporters to come, as well as a tourist family that they found at the top of the mountain. Uh, so that consisted of a father and two boys um, who were just sightseeing and wanted to see a volcano. So... Williams invited them to enter the caldera with him. Wait, stop it. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, that's not good. No, it's not. It's not good. This now- guy, did this guy lose all his credibility? Well, gonna... I guess in some form or fashion he did because he's dead. So, yeah, he probably did. <laughs> Is he, though? We don't know. I- I'm jumping ahead and saying he died. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> there's no way he comes out of this alive. Um, so they moved into the Caldera Bowl and began climbing up that crater cone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were fumaroles. Um, and those are, again, the volcanic gases seeping from the ground um, that were steaming out of the cinder cone. Um, and it, some of the scientists were like, this will make from excellent sampling. So they went and they started taking gas samples. Um, but many of the excited volcanologists were ready to see the heart of the volcano. Many people for like the first time in their lives. Um, by the time they got to the crater rim, the sun was shining, illuminating the steaming, steaming sulfuric rocks. Uh, two of the scientists, the Russian Menyalov and Nestor Garcia, were excited to get a better look at the crater base and get samples. They began climbing down inside the cone. Um, and the majority of the other scientists gathered their samples on the uh, cone rim. So I wonder how many volcanologists die a year. You, they actually, a lot of volcanologists take a lot of safety precautions. I'm sure because it's so dangerous, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also I, curious. I don't know. I'm Googling it right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and th- this event will probably help with that whole safety thing a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, what's coming, you know, what's coming. <laughs> yeah. I have a pretty good idea of what okay. might happen. <laughs> so meanwhile, down at the observatory, um, an intern saw a tornillo in the seismograph data and radioed up to Zapata Um, But because Zapata, who had the radio, was down in the caldera, the radio waves never reached him. Um, The intern instead radioed another scientist who was leading a seismology field trip on the uh, caldera rim. So they weren't down in the caldera, they were just along the rim. Um, 
and his name is Roberto Torres. Um, he contacted Zapata down in the crater and relayed the information. And then Zapata relayed the information to Williams and advised that the group should wrap up work as quickly as possible. But there was no sense of urgency from Williams and the others as they leisurely gathered samples. So they've got the information that a eruption may be imminent and they don't seem to care. So that's good. Well, I just also find it ironic that the intern was the one that relayed that information, mm -hmm. given the whole ego complex situation happening. Oh, oh yeah. I'm like, that's the real MVP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So by 1.30, Roald on Adams, F Fabio Garcia, and Estrada were making their way back to the caldera wall and were preparing to climb back up to safety when they heard a low rumbling sound. Um, Roldan had made it to the top of the caldera wall when a reporter trapped him, asking them the infamous question, when do you think Galeris is gonna erupt? Right now, let's right? get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Roldan answered, it could be a year from now, it could be a month from now, or it could be next week. Or it could be next minute. Yeah. Then the tape goes blank. And all that can be heard is the sound of an enormous explosion and the screams Yo. of the journalist. Oh, I just got chills. Stop. That's cool, though. That sucks, but it's cool. <laughs> it was like out of a movie kind of time. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's like if you found that and it's just like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> like how? How? Y'all, like, this is a not a Hollywood movie. It's real fucking life. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised that the film lasted through that. Well, you'll kind of see why okay. in a little bit. Um, so down on the crater cone, it was absolute mayhem. Uh, the eruption sounded like the biggest clap of thunder and a thick mass of black ash shot from the cinder cone straight into the sky, throwing boulders and glowing rock crashing to the ground and exploding into shrapnel. Oh God. Yeah. So McFarlane and Williams were both stuck, struck in the head by boulders. Okay. Which one right. was the ego guy? Williams. Okay. And you said, who, sorry, who got struck by <laughs> I know there's so many names. I do apologize. <laughs> like, Williams is names in the first place. So like getting heard a story of these people from like way back when I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. So uh, Williams is the lead scientist in this okay. situation. So him and one of the Americans, McFarlane, were both struck in the head by boulders. A sharp rock sliced into the back of Zapata's skull. Mm. And he landed face first in burning rock. Ugh. And he was instantly dead. Oh, for I, sure. <laughs> Dude, I just like saw that in my head as like, yeah, a movie scene. Yeah. Uh, I, I can visualize the Yeah. The tourist family was almost killed immediately uh, sure. from rocks crushing their skulls and their bodies catching fire. Uh, Williams was still alive. Oh my god. He struggled to his feet, but within seconds, exploding rocks struck his legs, splitting his shin and setting his clothes on fire. Oh my god. 
Uh, several of the other scientists, Lee Marie, Conway, and McFarland, took cover behind some boulders to protect themselves from falling rocks. But eventually they knew the boulders would not protect them. So they decided to make a run for it, praying that the rocks would miss them. Um, McFarland ran past Williams, who was crying for help on the ground. So Williams' leg was broken cleanly at a 90 degree angle at this point because the shrapnel had hit him in the leg. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. It, that's like a, um, fuck, what's it, football player, Redskins? Joe Theismann. That's like a Joe Theismann injury, isn't it? Bending at 90 degrees. Was it really? I actually don't know. I don't pay attention to football. That's, yeah, that's not good. That's not what you want to see. Yeah. Uh, so McFarland knew he couldn't reach him without dying himself. So he left Williams in the hope that he could hide under some, you know, rocks during the boulder fall. The three men managed to reach the base of the cone wall. They knew if another eruption from the volcano was coming, they had to get up higher on the calderic wall, the caldera wall, or else the pyroclastic flow of ash would incinerate them. Um, so just as a reminder, pyroclastic flows are just basically big, like kind of like mud flows of ash, but it's like mm -hmm. piping hot ash. And as soon as it touches your skin, you'd be burned and you'd suffocate and it would be horrible. Um, so if you get caught in a pyroclastic flow, it's immediate death. And pyroclastic flows are what actually cause the mudslide during the Armeroke tragedy. Um, so they're really, really deadly. Um, so they had reached the base of the cone. The explosion and falling rocks were beginning to calm. So they walked toward the base of the caldera as quickly as they could, despite having major injuries and bad burns. They used their packs to protect their heads um, and they would fall frequently putting out their hands to steady them, but it would be straight onto hot rock and ash, which just made their oh, burns yeah. worse, Ugh. right? So, and you know, they're going to have to climb, use a rope to climb up that wall. I'm surprised the rope didn't catch fire yet. I, me too. Um, so actually Andy Adams, who was one of the few people who wore a helmet, um, was climbing the caldera wall, suffering burns from the hot rocks raining down on him. But his hard hat was protecting him from head injury um, because that's, that's what they're for. <laughs> yeah, safety. safety first. Yeah. So the burns on his neck were starting to bubble and he was exhausted, but he managed to pull himself to the crater rim 45 minutes after the initial explosion. Wow. Um, Roldan, the other person who was wearing safety gear, was waiting for him, dodging rocks himself and watching the destruction unfold but he waited on the fixed rope to help any of the people climbing up into or up the caldera, basically helping them get to safety. So he stayed in order to do that when he could have left and gone down to the town, mm -hmm. which I mean, I would hope that that's what you would do in that situation, but yeah. Yeah. So let's get to uh, the real MVP here, Marta. Um, she was a thousand feet down from the summit of Galeris. She was leading a field trip to study the old 
pyroclastic flows from previous eruptions. And she had heard the explosion and immediately jumped into action, sending her field trip group down to the relative safety of Pasto. Meanwhile, she and Patty Moths, another volcanologist, drove up the mountain to assist any of the survivors that they could. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they ran into straight into the fire. Um, God bless. Because they knew their colleagues were still up there. Yeah. Yeah. So Conway, another American scientist, uh, finally managed to pull himself over the caldera rim. And he told Roald Dawn and the other rescuers that had arrived from the observatory that Lee Marie and McFarlane were still alive down there, um, down at the base of the caldera. So the rescuers began making their way down the slope, quickly followed by Marta, who had just arrived. Um, by this point, Lee Marie managed to climb up to the top, but his hands were gnarled with burns, and it turned out both of his legs were broken. So oh he had made that climb on broken legs. Jeez Louise. Um, somehow he had like managed to climb up halfway up the slope, and the rescuers carried him the rest of the way. Yeah. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, there's survivors of this, which is so crazy to me like what the hell <laughs> yeah and when we get more into the who was the survivors i have a question on that too mm -hmm. so patty moths who came up with marta decided to head down into the caldera as well adams had given her his hard hat to protect her um, but he was in no shape to be rescuing anybody um so she followed marta and heard stanley williams still alive calling for help after he had gotten struck in the head by a rock and his leg was at a 90 degree angle, uh, still alive. Um, they had found McFarlane, who was quickly going into shock. Moths and a few of the volunteers stayed with McFarlane and Marta ran off um, into the clouds of gas to look for Williams. Um, Jeez, you go, yeah. girl. I know. She's fucking badass. Um Rescuers, some park rangers, uh, they both arrived and placed McFarlane on an aluminum stretcher. And with Moz, they began hauling McFarlane up the slope um, until they reached the caldera rim. He was quickly ushered into a waiting ambulance. Wow. So back down in the crater, Marta Calvace uh, came upon the scene of the two rescuers from the observatory finding Williams, who was still alive. Nearby was Zapata, so he was the one who had the radio mm -hmm. initially. Um, and when one of the rescuers sat him up, and this is a trigger warning, his brain fell out of his skull. <gasps> oh, what? Yeah. Wait, wait, how? I mean, wait, like, wait, 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 wait. So they found him, they found him on his back or his front? Uh, on his front. And they like, and he was already dead. He was already dead. Yeah, but they thought he might still be alive. So oh. they picked him up to check. <laughs> and his brain falls out like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote in the script, this is the next sentence. It was a confirmation of his death. Like, no shit, Jillian. <laughs> yeah, like, confirmed. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, can you imagine? Oh, my God. So the rescuers went on to look for more bodies. I would have vomited. Yeah. I would have been like, I'm out. Okay, goodbye. Um, 
Marta and the ranger made it to Williams's side. Um, they made splints from a styrofoam cooler that had held the volcanologist's gas samples. Okay. Um, so that they could kind of set his broken leg. Um, uh-huh. They carried him out on a blanket um, and with the aid of moths who had come back down to find more survivors, the trip to the uh, wall of the caldera took two hours. Oh. Dragging oh, him. Oh, wow. Um, finally, uh, Red Cross medics came down and got Williams on the stretcher. Um, and one took off Williams's really, he had a, a hat on and it was very, very bloody. So he took off the cap. Another trigger warning here. Underneath was a gaping wound showing Williams's exposed brain. I was going to say, did you see his brain? Mm-hmm. He's still uh, alive. He's still yeah. alive. I hope he had a hard ego check after this trip. Yeah, well. Uh, so his skull was crushed, um, but obviously not enough to kill him. Um he was helivacked out to a hospital um, far away from the still rumbling volcano. Um, so this eruption was actually pretty small um, in comparison to Armero or a lot of the other really intense mm. volcanic eruptions. And so it was really only dangerous in the caldera and kind of on the rim, but not as bad as you would think. Um, Obviously, you could still get hit and killed by rocks, but it wasn't, like, as bad as if you were in the caldera itself. But if you were in the caldera, like, that was kind of a death sentence. Um, but, like, the town wasn't infected at all. Right. It was for this like whole thing. There. Yeah. It was just, like, a small eruption that happened. Um, wild. Yeah. Um, so there were no more survivors found in the volcano. All that were left was basically just charred bodies. So they found the three charred bodies of the tourist family. Um, Menyalov and Nestor Garcia had been in the actual cone at the time of the eruption and they had been vaporized completely. Uh, oh, There was wow. nothing, nothing left of them. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, you know, the, truth of the mortality of this eruption um Mm -hmm. so adams conway lee marie mcfarland and williams had all survived the 93 galeris eruption but so that's five out of the 13 people that were down in there um they were all badly injured covered in burns cuts contusions broken legs and for McFarlane and Williams, they both had major brain and skull injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, amazingly, both pulled through. That's so wild. And, I mean, they they said Williams, they didn't understand how he was still alive. Yeah. Especially with that brain injury. Um, so Williams and McFarlane both got evacuated from the country and sent back to the United States for recovery. Um, Yeah. And uh, United States uh, Geological Society, I believe, USGS, 
mm-hmm. uh, scientists or, or maybe it's service. I think it's service, not society. I thought, was, yeah. I thought it was society, actually. I should have looked this up. I can do it right now. Okay. <laughs> There's so much stuff that you like read and you're like, oh, fuck, I should have looked that up. <laughs> U.S. Geological Survey. Survey. Okay. I was wrong. <laughs> So USGS scientists were appalled by the lack of safety, the lack of heating the signs of the tornillos. And in fact, uh, some of the other seismologists at the meeting had predicted an eruption from Galeris in like a matter of weeks. And it just happened that it happened right when um, that group of scientists was in the volcano, which is like coincident city, or I don't know, an act from God. I don't know what you want to call it. Like it's, unreal it's something yeah i don't understand i just don't understand how this all lined up in this way i want to find that video yeah that would be like really interesting to see Mm -hmm. i'm sure it's on youtube or something but i haven't actually seen it myself i just read about it in the book yeah i uh i was trying to google it but also like i'm really scared to search things on my computer right now because i feel like i'm gonna mess the internet up (laughs) (laughs) and we're gonna mess this whole thing up yeah we can do it we can do it after we're done recording yeah okay so meanwhile williams had made a miraculous recovery and was touring the united states going on talk shows claiming that he was the sole survivor of the eruption So he did not get an ego check from this. No, no. (laughs) What does it take for these people sometimes? I don't know. Yeah. And Adams, Conway, Lee Marie, and McFarlane were all pretty pissed about it, Um, which makes sense. Oh, sure. Yeah. So talk show and been like, nope, he wasn't the only one. I survived too. And let me tell you what, he made all the calls. Yeah. So he was also claiming that he had told the other scientists was something that w- something was wrong and that they needed to get out of there. Um, but Adam's testament shows that that was definitely not the case, um, especially because yeah. he berated Adams and rolled on um, from, oh, I guess rolled on too. He survived. He just was on the crater when it exploded. He was the guy who um, being interviewed when it exploded. He was on that trip too, but because he was already up, he was like, he didn't really have injuries or anything. Okay. Um, So there's six survivors out of 13. My bad. Um, So both of their testaments like show that that definitely wasn't the case because they both got berated for wearing safety gear. And that whole assault was basically led by Williams. Like he was the one who was like, you're dumb. You know, skull cracked open. Yeah. And he let others continue to collect samples even after he was alerted to the tornadoes. So he knew what was going on. Yeah. yeah. He even claimed that there was no sign um, that the volcano was going to erupt, which is basically is the opposite of what he said earlier. So he's yeah. flip-flopping the story um, to all these news people. Classic backtracking. Right. So Adams and Conway confronted him about it. um, And Williams basically began a smear campaign, basically stating that the other two Americans were just trying to undermine him. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's. Yeah. This guy, I mean, 
he's still alive and he is uh, still, I believe, working for University of Arizona. So I want to say too, too much, but I, this story just really gets at me um, because I know these kind of people and I know every branch of science has these kind of people and it's just very frustrating to be gaslighting people like this. I mean, based on what he's done within the media, you know. Yeah. So he put himself out there. So I'm, I'm going to call it like I see it. Obviously, I wasn't yeah. there, but I believe like five people over one person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if five people are saying something different happened, then I'm going to believe them. So yeah, I mean, like, there's three sides to every story, right? Like, yeah. Or virgin and then the truth. Right, right. So even worse, um, Williams has gotten into some uh, data stealing. Um, so why does that not surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what else has he done? Fraud? Because <laughs> <laughs> like, is that on the list too? Uh, Might as well be. Um, so the Swiss American scientist Shoei. Uh, um, who had successfully predicted eruptions on Galeris and in Alaska, was asked to review a paper in which Williams was a co-author, basically showing his research, basically showing that tornadoes and seismic activity were crucial to predicting eruptions. And it was basically the same paper that Shoei had been working on for years, hmm. but hadn't published yet. Hmm. Yeah, so they're sketchy. Um, yeah, so basically what happened or what seemed to have happened was Williams's gas chemistry data was basically useless. So he decided to jump onto a more successful paper that had basically stolen Shoei's work. Um, so since this paper was published first, the editor of Nature asked that Shoei remove any mention of Galeris in his work so that they would be removed from the con- controversy. God. Yeah. So there's, you know, repercussions of this event for years to come for people who weren't directly involved either. So, uh, so Marta Calvecce continued though to work with Williams and remained the head of the Pasto observatory for years to come. Uh, Galeris erupted twice more in the 90s, um, but a pyroclastic flow never flooded Pasto or any of the surrounding towns um, like the Nevado del Ruiz did in Armero. Um, In the recent years, scientists have become reliant on low seismic activity and tornadoes predicting eruptions. So that really was like the correct way to determine or the best way to determine when an eruption is going to happen. Um, so, so for now, uh, Galeris and Armero continue to sleep, but heeding the warnings of science, um, will continue to be important in preventing these kinds of disasters in the future. And that goes for all kinds of natural events, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is the wild roller coaster ride of the Galeris eruption story. God. Wow. I think what's most frustrating to me is like this Williams guy. Mm-hmm. Like I hate him. Yeah. He's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So Marta Cal how do you say your last name? Calvece? Yeah. Marta Calvece. 
she is like the real MVP of the story though. Yeah. I feel like and so why wasn't she ever interviewed after? Was she or was she not? I mean, I'm sure she was, but that whole incident with Roldan at the top of the caldera is just like so cinematic. I just felt like I had to include it because they're literally interviewing him like. And it goes. Yeah. And I'm sure she was interviewed, but she wasn't directly in the volcano when it erupted. So she didn't know exactly what went down between Stanley Williams and everybody else before the volcano erupted. Yeah. She was like somewhere else leading a field trip on another part of the volcano. Right. And so she, yeah. Falling out of his head. Jeez. Yeah. So the people that uh, died during this incident um, was Nestor Garcia, Jose Arles Zapata, Carlos Trujillo, Fernando Cuencia, uh, Fabio Garcia, Igor Menyalov, and uh, our good friend Jeff Brown. <laughs> Geoff. Geoff. Oh my God, I'm so dumb. Um, and so those were the people along with the three um, tourists, the father and the, the two sons, that's so sad. That all died uh, during this eruption. And then Stanley Williams, Mike Conway, Andrew McFarlane, Andy Adams, Alfredo Roldan, and Louis Le Marie, I believe, are all of the survivors. Wow. So. Wowie. Like, this one's just such a doozy. And I think it just hits me in such a real way because I've met people like this working in our field. Yeah. And it's like really frustrating t- trying to get through to them yeah at a certain point you just like throw your hands up in the air and say fuck it yeah and I don't I don't mean to be like super negative but like all of the research I've done into Williams's involvement in this makes me just want to come for his wig you know what I mean yeah for sure (laughs) to borrow a phrase from uh RuPaul's Drag Race um that's funny I didn't, yeah I know that show but I didn't know that's what they said that's really mm-hmm. funny that, I think it's um, just like drag culture in general it's not necessarily like RuPaul's drag race but yeah. it's just drag culture yeah yeah no I mean like the um yeah everything about that Williams guy I, just, I mean I, don't, I only know what you told me right and I'm already pretty pretty like heated on the inside about it I know I know and I like really tried to be like, okay, let's look at this from different angles. And is there even a good angle though? I mean, like, I don't think there is. I don't think he wanted that to happen. You know what I mean? I do think like he didn't want people to die, but he was so into himself that he didn't realize the signs were there. Right. Right. He was probably super focused on doing something really cool. Yeah. Well, and they also say that potentially he got, he did have brain damage from this injury in this book that I read for this research. um, There was a lot of people who said like, you know, his research program was never the same. He had to take, you know, a break from teaching classes because he was just having a lot of trouble with it. Um, But at the same time, it's like, I mean, you don't, lose that much memory you know that you go on talk shows and just say you were the only one you know yeah because like if you don't remember enough about it why would you go on the talk show yeah 
And I've experienced people having really traumatic brain injuries. And when you have that level of injury and you're in the hospital, you do lose time and you lose memory. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. I just could never do that to another person or believe that they were lying, especially when there's like six people who are like, no, 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 no. That's not how it went down. You know? Well, also like after a traumatic experience like that, why would you want to continue reliving it by going on talk shows and talking about it? Right. And I think there's some kind of disconnect there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's uh it's yeah, definitely a very weird one. And on one hand I'm like, okay, so the brain injury probably did play into some of it, but I definitely think the ego did not help that situation. Thank you. Yeah, like he was always definitely a sandwich shy of a picnic on this one. But yeah. then like after the incident, he's like two sandwiches shy of a picnic. You know? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So I that just like goes back to the whole safety first, safety first, safety first. Um, something that I practice every time I go out on the field. Um, it's actually kind of part of my job to make sure everyone else practices it as well. Um, yeah. And it's just like, you don't know what's going to happen in yeah. nature. Like yeah. there's, there's no guarantees. So you might as well just be prepared so you can prevent stuff like this from happening. Yeah. Things pop up randomly all the time yeah because for example maybe if Zapata had been wearing a helmet maybe he would have still been alive and his skull Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been crushed Mm -hmm. I don't know how strong those helmets were or how big that rock that killed him was but um yeah I know like it's one of those things like I get the point of helmets but at a certain point it's like if yeah if their rock is that heavy to the point where like a helmet's not working yeah what's the point of even having it yeah yeah the point of having it in the first place is to limit the risk right of that but well and like it wouldn't have mattered if Menyalov and Garcia were wearing helmets because they just got vaporized yeah you know because they were right right at the point where it would have exploded that's something that I always find pretty interesting though is that there are elements out there hot and strong enough to vaporize a human body oh yeah this whole story is so fascinating to me because of like the whole politics of academia and science and then also just like how can human get vaporized how does that i don't what and then also how can you break your leg at a 90 degree angle and get your skull crushed and live like on the opposite end you know yeah that's nuts that is really nuts. The Taurus family dot kills me. That really does. That one really hits my heart pretty hard. Yeah. I can just only imagine that it was like really innocent on their end. Like, they probably oh. were like, oh my God, they're volcano scientists. They would know, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then he's like, oh, come along with us. It'll be fine. Right. right. Knowing he has like no idea what he's doing. <laughs> Right. And that's one of those things is like, if you trust too much in one set of methodology, you lose, especially with something as important as predicting a volcano eruption, Mm -hmm. you know, you lose the, I guess, safety of combining several methods to kind of be like, okay, this is what's happening. Like, for example, hurricane 
predictions are based off of like a ton of different models from different universities. And that's how they kind of be like, okay, this general area is going to be where it's going to hit. You might want to evacuate. Right. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you be like, let's combine gas and seismic and like try to use that to predict stuff instead of just being like, well, this is the only way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you're really fixated on it, you lose sight of all the other options out there. Right. And that's no bueno. I am always open to using different methodologies to answer questions because I just think it's important to be open to a lot of different things when you work in science. So this one just has like a very personal uh, vibe to me because I've worked with these kind of people before, you know, Mm -hmm. in a lot safer situations (laughs) though. For sure. But yeah, Yeah. that's why I think I'm so annoyed with it at the same time is because I'm like, God, like you've been there. Yeah. This is freaking frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to do my citations for this before I forget. (laughs) Okay. So my citations for this um, were actually only uh, this book called No Apparent Danger. It's written by journalist Victoria Bruce really didn't was not involved with the eruption so she's kind of a a non-biased researcher and she did a really really good job of talking about both the Amero tragedy and um, the eruption at Galeris Um, and then also I'd like to thank um, the survival podcast um, from Parcast Um, they did an episode on the Galeris eruption which made me look into this whole story in the first place because I was like this story is crazy it has it all um Mm -hmm. so I like to thank them too they do really good research um for their stories they are very factual so if you don't like this podcast but you still want to learn about survival you can go listen to them (laughs) Jillian (laughs) but if you like listening to two girls talk then um here we are. So <laughs> That's not for you. Yeah. Okay. We know my favorite murder did it first. So <laughs> we'll yeah. give them credit where credit's due. Um, so let's get away from um, brain splitting and leg breaking. Um, and let's kind of talk about uh, the good things that happened to us this week or that we're looking forward to. So it's kind of hard to jump ahead because... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> we pre-recorded this but I can tell you that I'm going to be super stoked after I get back from seeing my family and mm-hmm. meeting my nephew so I'm going to go with that one yeah that's a good one yeah, I'm also going to go with that um yeah your mom's going into town right yeah uh not this upcoming week but the week after uh she's going to be in town and we're all vaccinated um so we're going to take a little teeny um beach trip to Galveston which is, uh, I think it's a sweet little, you know, beach town on the coast. Um, it looks like it. Every time I've watched HGTV's Beach Bargain Hunt. <laughs> right? <laughs> on Galveston. I gotta great. say, like, it's a good food town. Yeah? Um, yeah, I, there's a lot of restaurants there that me and Corey really like. So, And a lot of them are, like, open-air seating, which is good for mm-hmm. Corona and also good for dogs. Because mm-hmm. we yeah. are going to bring Marzi with us. <laughs> good. Uh, it's also a very pretty dog friendly town which is nice um but yeah it's gonna be i need i need a little break you know i just need to 
relax. Borderline burned out for the past yeah. like month. And it's Me been too. coming in waves. It's like coming in waves, like it'll get better, but then like a couple of days later, it's just like back to feeling like borderline burned out. And it's like, ugh. Yeah. So I think, I I, time. yeah, I think both of us need this. And then another little thing that happened to me a couple of days ago is I haven't really been into music lately. I don't know why. I just haven't really been interested. Um, but I found an artist that I like and I've just been listening to all of her albums. Um, Who is it? Uh, her name is uh, Phoebe Bridgers um, and okay. she's like won Grammys and shit. So she's I've like, heard of her. yeah, yeah. Um, I really like it. Her music is very sad girl, um, but I'm kind of here for it. And I think she has really good lyrics and she's kind of like, she's a poet in my opinion. So I've just been really getting lost in that. And that's something I haven't done in a long time. Um, so I think that's yeah. another one of my good things. Down here in Florida, nothing was ever truly closed because it's Florida. Right. Um, except for that one time at the beginning of coronavirus, they shut down US-1 so no tourists could drive in. Mm -hmm. But um, the Green Parrot, which is like an open air bar down in Key West, they mm -hmm. do ukulele night on Wednesdays. Fun. And they had canceled it because of coronavirus, but they're bringing it back. I think they brought it back like last week or the week before. And so mm -hmm. that's something that me and my friends we're thinking about doing now that we're vaccinated that yeah. we can go and do ukulele night and apparently it's like you can borrow ukuleles from what I've heard but maybe they won't do that because of coronavirus yeah but <laughs> I know and so I'm not worried about it I was right my own. but um they like I guess they put up the chords and stuff of the songs that they're practicing or playing and like they all do it together and it's just like a super chill fun like everyone brings their ukuleles and learns and plays long that's cute that's so that's awesome i'm jealous that you're able to play any instrument because i uh, cannot <laughs> hey i never said i was good at it i can do acapella i mean i did the uh, intro song so i can write music i just can't play it yourself <laughs> credit at all for that intro song so uh to everyone listening jillian's singing that intro song yeah i did all the parts so it was it was a weird afternoon because I had not done anything like that in so long. Yeah, um, but it was good. So I'm yeah. I'm happy enough with it. I'm not 100 happy, but you know. Well, we can always change it. It'll do. We can just bring some ukulele in. <laughs> yeah, like to your like mysterious sad intro death song, <laughs> like a happy ukulele track in the back. It'll be perfect. <laughs> Probably like our two personalities. Together. yeah exactly <laughs> It'd be hilarious um <laughs> all right i guess it's time to wrap up because we're kind of losing it a little bit so where can our listeners find us or submit a um survival story of their own per usual hit us up on the website mother nature will kill you podcast.com and on social media at Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter, we are M-N-W-K-Y Podcast. Yeah. So go hit us up. Send it in. It's going to be a good time. Um, and we'll talk, tell people about the weird shit that's happened to you. All right. So with that, we're going to sign off. Stay safe. But most of all, stay curious, explorers. See ya. Goodbye.